HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and Three, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Jen and Zach Pelka. We'll talk to Jen and Zach about Champagne, the Riddler, Un Femme, and more. Did I pronounce that right? You did, yeah. Okay. We'll taste a Juliette for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Siblings Jen and Zach Pelka would make any parent proud, graduating respectively from Stanford and Wharton. Zach, with a background in finance and startups, is now a consultant and the CEO founder of Champagne Campaign. Jen started in the kitchen as a stage with Daniel Balud. She worked her way out of the kitchen to do research for Daniel. Worked with Daniel and Thomas Keller on the Boku d'Or. Did stints at Open Table, Guilt Taste, and Tumblr before starting her own PR and marketing firm, Magnum PR, aimed at the hospitality industry. Jen still had a hospitality itch to be scratched and opened the Riddler, an award-winning champagne bar in San Francisco, and recently opened a Riddler in New York City. 
Jen and Zach have just released their own champagne brand, Un Femme, and we're going to taste that today. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Was that intro accurate? That was accurate. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have kids, you know, if they went to Stanford and Wharton and Yale, you know. You know, yeah, yeah. All right. So, guys, you've been getting a lot of good press lately, um, but I need you to give my listeners a little background. Um, Jen, we'll start with you. Tell me about your journey in life and wine that got you to current, which is releasing a champagne, recently opening a Riddler, you know, and then we'll get to Zach. Yeah, we buzz through. We'll get into all the meat during the show. Totally, totally. I mean, I think for for both of us, we grew up in a house where food and wine were really important. We had a lot of dinner parties. My dad is the president of his wine club down in Florida, <laughs> um, and it's a really important part of our family culture. Um, and the first time that I really got into sparkling wine in particular was when I was in my young 20s. I was a regular at Schiller's, RIP. In and, Manhattan. Yep, in downtown. Manhattan, Keith McNally restaurant. And right. uh, my friends and I would hang out there a couple nights a week. And we'd walk in and they'd put a bottle of Prosecco down on the bar as soon as we walked in. We'd drink that bottle for free and then leave 50 bucks on the bar and head on out for the night. So... Um, that was really where I started falling in love with sparkling wine, and then prosecco, no less. Yeah, right? absolutely. I okay. mean, um, I still drink a bit of prosecco here There's and there. Good stuff out absolutely, there. Absolutely, of course. Um, and I think prosecco, champagne, um, sparkling wines from all around the world really commemorate, you know, any kind of moment. And so you get that same feeling no matter what, especially when you're early in your in your life and you only have a few bucks in your pocket. Sure. Yeah. All right. So keep going. So um, I went. Um, I really started learning about champagne when I worked for Danielle. Um, it's a wonderful place to get to learn about and experience wines. Um, and then I ended up working at the Gilt Group at Gilt Taste, which was a gourmet food and wine site where we sold all kinds of products. And that's where I really, really learned about champagne because we would do sales with brands like Krug and Dom Perignon and um, Veuve Clicquot, et cetera. And so I learned about those big houses and, um, we sold tons of those wines and that was really my entree into the champagne world. Okay. And I was at a tasting for Veuve Clicquot when I learned what riddling was. And at that moment I said, um, I, one day I'm going to open a champagne bar called the Riddler. So tell everyone quickly what riddling is. Yep, absolutely. Just so, so we know. Totally. So the way that champagne is made is that there's a still wine and they put it in the bottle and then a secondary fermentation happens in the bottle with sugar and yeast converting into CO2. And the bubbles. The bubbles, exactly. So they don't like inject it with CO2. Um, and... Because those sugars and yeasts are, are left in the bottle, they are floating around, and it's a very cloudy beverage, almost like um, how kombucha right. has things floating around in it. And so um, the widow Clicquot, the woman who took over the Clicquot house in the 1800s, Veuve means widow in French, um, she was like, these wines are not going to sell. They're brown, and they have stuff floating around in them. So she... Um, took the bottles and turned them upside down, put them in holes that she carved out of a, um, of a door, almost like a table, and turned those bottles every day. And so the sediment went into the neck, and then she was able to freeze the neck and remove that sediment, creating a crystal clear beverage. The sediment would blow, settle and blow out. Essentially, yes. When you open it up, Absolutely, right. absolutely. And so um, that turning of the bottles every day is called riddling, or remouage in French. Right, and, and you're champagne bars of the Riddler. All right. So 
Where are we at? I forgot already. Okay. I made you so talk. we're at Guilt Taste. I'm selling right. a lot of Krug and Dom Perignon, all the big houses. Um, and then from there, I really fell in love with drinking true champagne. And um, once I met my husband, really, is when I started learning about grower-producer wines. So... Um, my, was he the guy that knew about him? He was the guy that together? knew about him. My, my like, real aha moment was a brunch that we did um, actually at our now distributor's house. So our distributor is Martins. The famous. owner, absolutely. Famous, famous woman. Um, the owner is this guy, Greg Castells. He was the head sommelier of the French Laundry before he bought Martins. And um, he and his wife are good friends of my now husband and I. And um, on one of our second dates, I think it was... Um, Charles, my husband, took me on this like beautiful tour all around Napa. We had um, this great breakfast at Greg's house. And at breakfast, we had soft scrambled eggs and these beautiful cheese plates and um, a bottle of Pierre Peters non-vintage Blanc de mm. Blanc. And I was like, oh, my God, mm. you can drink champagne at breakfast? And that was, for me, the turning point of thinking about champagne as a wine and um, really having really, really good quality grower-producer wines. All right, so... Let's get from guilt to current. Sure. And let's get out of here okay. so I can get to, to <laughs> Zach. So from there, um, I went to Open Table and was on the marketing team. And then I eventually left and didn't know exactly what I was going to do. And I started a restaurant PR company, Magnum. And then my husband and I were real regulars at this sushi spot in San Francisco. And I, there was this cute little cafe across the street, and um, I always said, if that place becomes available, I'm going to turn it into a Riddler. You sat, ate, and stared at it. Exactly. Right. And it was so perfect. So um, you had the name. So I had the name. I had the location. location and um, it came on the market. I put in an offer the next day. The guy accepted it, and then it took him a full year to give us the keys. Oy. But it gave me time to really figure out what we were going to do and to fundraise and all that. And so the first one opened in October or in January 2017. And our um, second location. Yeah, our first one's in San Francisco. And our second location opened here in New York in October of this past year. All right. So that gets us to current. We're going to talk collectively about the wine. Zach, you got out of school not that long ago. Um, you did some startups, finance and all that. Um when did the wine and champagne thing happen? Yeah, sure. I guess Jen was... Uh, yeah, so really growing up, um, so Jen's 12 years older than me, so I've learned a lot of this sort of symbiotically through her experiences. Um, similar to what you said, uh, my background has been much more in finance, so out of school I started a student loan company that eventually got acquired, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. With Did you make a few bucks from that? A couple. Okay. And and after that, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I looked at a bunch of different opportunities. And Jen came to me and said, hey, do you have any interest in starting a champagne brand? And when was this? This was a year ago. Okay. Actually, yeah, it's early February uh, 2019. And I thought about it. And Jen has the funnest life of anyone that I know. And is generally the happiest person that I know. So I thought about it. I was like... This is something I'd want to do if I was retired. So this seems like a no-brainer. Um, so my kind of exposure to the wine industry is very, very new. Um, so I really jumped in feet first without really much exposure to hospitality, wine right, knowledge, etc. Exactly. I had the the anchor that so is my sister. Well, and also Zach helped to launch this really awesome e-commerce site when he was in college called Merchants of Beverage. That is also correct. Um, so I worked with. 
uh, one of my mentors, this Thanks, guy, Mom. yeah, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Jeff Mizell, who was one of Jen's business partners at Guilt. Um, but basically, we developed a more e-commerce approach to gifting high-end wine and spirits. So I was Smart. 18 years old getting to taste some pretty crazy Smart. alcohol on the high end. So it was a great entrance. Don't tell the liquor police or anything about that. No, but no. it was a, a great entrance to the overall industry. I just didn't really think about it from a larger uh, occupational standpoint until really the past year. Right. And we'll talk about that. Um, I want to run a few things by you guys. So, Jen, obviously you made a transition from restaurants to PR because um, at some point you were just doing PR. I mean, yeah. why why leave sort of the hospitality, hospitality part to be in the marketing hospitality? Well, I, um, you know, my first client actually was my husband. Right. So I, when I left Open Table, I went to a startup actually, and I was their head of marketing. And I quickly realized they were going to go out of business. And so I left and didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And I said to Charles, hey, what do you think I should do? And he's like, look, you've really been doing Suvla's PR for free for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, why don't you start a consulting firm? And so he uh, wrote us, wrote me the first check, which was awesome. And um, he was our first client. And then very quickly, um, we learned that there were other restaurateurs in San Francisco who needed PR and and marketing help. And so just picked up a lot of really amazing chef clients. Did you pursue them? Like you yeah, knew, sure. you sort I mean, of had the mojo of what to do. So if you reached out, you knew right away you can help people. Is that how you grew the business? I, Definitely, but we, I mean, most of, most of our clients came to us just direct and inbound. I mean, it's a pretty small market in San Francisco and and yeah, everybody kind of knows everybody. And so, um, there are very few people in San Francisco who are publicists who have relationships in New York and I was one of those people. So, so then why do you go from marketing back to hospitality, hospitality? Yeah. You know, I said, I, I think you had a little itch, but. You know, I you you said you were sitting in a sushi restaurant staring yeah. at a location to fil- fulfill a dream. I think when you're doing publicity for other people's restaurants, um, you're either one of two kinds of people. You either want to keep doing publicity for other people's restaurants or you want your own. Or and, both. Or both. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, the day-to-day of running a restaurant is so much fun, so creative, so exciting. And um, while we still do PR for a handful of other... Uh, restaurant operators we're super selective about who we work with they're people who we really really believe in what they're doing and that it feels like it's absolutely worth our time Um, but really I spend most of my day focusing on my own companies at this point so let's talk about that because you have an interesting I guess business plan and perspective you did at Magnum you do at Riddler Um, it involves multiple investors yep which is interesting I mean restaurants always have multiple In, in Riddler you have a lot and there's a very heavy, if not almost exclusive, skew to women. Yes, that's right. So tell me how that all, yeah. you know, came. It's a very, you know, admirable thing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, so Magnum, I completely self-funded um, and grew the business through cash flow. Um, so I guess we have one investor that's me. <laughs> and then with the Riddler, um, we have 33 investors, all of whom are women in San Francisco and in New York, a very similar number, also all of whom are women, about half of whom reinvested from our original. Was that a need? I need that many people to get the money? Or was. was that a concept like, hey, let's create a community and it'll be... It's, um, it's actually a little bit of both. Okay. So 
Um, we're now at a point that I think that we could fund Riddlers with a very small community of people, um, but we've selected to open it up to a group of, I think 30 is around a good sweet spot. Um, it's definitely a lot of people to manage a lot of reservation requests that get sent to my text. Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm more in. than happy to do it. They, they absolutely deserve a table. Um, but there's something really magical about having a community of women who haven't had a lot of other opportunities to invest in restaurants. Um, almost, there are very, very few of our, our investors who inv have invested right. in other restaurants. It wasn't their thing. It was right. a new thing for them. Yeah. And yeah. also the way that I... Um, the way that I structure the fundraise is that I allow people to do, you know, investments of $10,000 or $20,000, $50,000. I'm not super specific about we need you in at 50 or a hundred K, but right. we do have a couple really big investors. And then we've got a lot of smaller investors and they're all really important to us. Did the recent opening of New York replicate that? It did. As yeah. far as yep. the amount of investors and predominantly, if not all women? 100% women. And that will definitely be always um, a part of what we do. So like an old rich guy like me, if I wanted to do this, I'm screwed. <laughs> well, hey, if... Uh, it sucks. If you've got like uh, an important woman in your life, maybe... That's right. That's my aunt. I forgot could, about that. Yeah. I shouldn't have even said anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I guess you're the perfect person to ask. And... It's a question we could do a show on, but I think you could probably, you know, drill it down a little. Um, what's the best advice or guide you can give to our women listeners, you know, who want to get into a business generally or even hospitality? And like I said, it's a broad question, but it, boy, you know, sometimes it's the word passion or hustle, but you know, what it is, what's in your mind? I think um, if you want to open a business, particularly in the restaurant field or really any business, you have to do a ton of research. Um, you have to learn everything that you possibly can about who's excelling in that industry and why. Um, there are so many free resources out in the world, podcasts being a really wonderful Yay, one. Yay, you're absolutely. a big fan of podcasts. I love podcasts. It's a resource for you, right? Oh, absolutely. I have a huge list of podcasts that I send to people when they ask me. Um, what should I do if I want to start my own business? Also, I absolutely think that everybody should be watching Shark Tank. If you're raising money, Shark Tank should be your number one. If you can answer the all the questions. And absolutely. If you can the... answer all the questions with confidence that they're asking, you're probably at a pretty mature state with your business and your idea and your business plan, your business model, and you're able to answer all of those kinds of hard questions. But I think first and foremost, seek out the people who are real experts in your fields, who you really admire, and try to work for them. And when you... You did that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I worked... And you talk about that. Oh, it's so, it's so, so important. And the kind of people who we recruit to, to the team now, um, especially at the Riddler, are almost exclusively people who have worked in extraordinary fine dining restaurants and who now want to be a little bit more downtown. But you learn so much working with the very, very best, no matter what field you're in. And if you want to do something casual, I think it's still really important to work with um, the highest quality operators around right you know certainly in the new york or san francisco it's a little easier but every town has a great absolutely but so you your point is you really have to put the work in yeah the i research, mean research yeah you know look for models and then really maybe put yourself out there and you know work for some of these people I absolutely mean, you, you kind of thrust yourself on danielle 
Oh, which is so cool. many times. I mean, I was fired by Danielle twice, so okay. you know, we're still we're still pals though. All right. <laughs> All right, Zach, you talked about starting the champagne thing about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the business part of that. I mean, from then to now. Sure. I mean, you start with an idea. Mm-hmm. And then the two of you start hustling for the reality, which involved what? Looking for producers, design? Yeah, so really it's been a whole host of different things. So going into it, I guess my expectation was it would be pretty easy to launch a brand, which <laughs> was completely incorrect, <laughs> as it basically has taken two years to get this launched today. So pretty exciting that we finally have gotten here. Um, but Thinking through the timeline, obviously the most important thing to start was similar to the Riddler, getting funding, giving us the optionality to, you know, start hiring designers, building websites, identifying distributors, producers, etc. Um, so luckily we have an incredible network between my previous investors, Jen's existing investors, and then obviously friends of friends of friends. Um, Did so, you do a similar thing, a multiple investment group? So we only actually have two key investors okay. in this entity. We're keeping it very small. Um, so that, that's the way we've thought about structuring it, where it's a lot easier to manage. Um, and our plan is to never take any venture capital funding, really focus on a profitabil- profitability, cash flow-focused business as an alternative to really like a, a big, high, fast-growth business. All right, so what we're talking about is you started a uh, wine company, and your first product is a champagne, which mm-hmm. I want to talk about a little more towards the end of the show. But, Jen, I think it would be a good time to maybe pop that mom. You got it. And maybe pour it around and sip it and all of that. You got it. All right, so while we're doing that, so two years, mm-hmm. and it's on the table. It is right now, now on the table. It doesn't seem crazy. I mean, I know the trials and tribulations yep. in the yep. time, but it seems you know like a reason. Yeah, it's it's been reasonable. And I would say there is several major hurdles that once we figured it out, the the path has accelerated very quickly. So obviously the first two really were identifying who our producers were going to be. Right. So we're incredibly lucky to be partnering with Gonet Medvi, uh, which is an amazing grower producer in Champagne. Um, And then similarly, we're also actually launching a wine called the Cali, uh, which is a sparkling rosé made in partnership with Sam Sheehan of Poe Wines. Right. so once we identified the two core producers of the wine, uh, really the the major hurdles were around the actual design, the branding, right. and the packaging. Yeah. So the the thing that's been Finding fascinating. Bottlers, oh, it's it's yeah. unbelievable. Where believe it or not, it takes about twelve to sixteen weeks to make a foil on the top of a champagne bottle. You mean to pre-order? Yep. So if you thought that was one of the last things you did and you wanted to get out in five to six weeks, you're screwed because that's going to take three, four months. Yep. We were planning on launching in August. You live uh, and you learn. (laughs) So I just witnessed something interesting. Maybe one of the great people in Champagne, you know, who's probably popped. I don't know. We could go into the thousands. Just opened her own champagne (laughs) and just drenched herself. And you know what? I think that's quite cold. I think that's good luck, and it's a good thing, and all that. And I enjoyed watching. Chris in the studio, you know, it smells good in here. It does smell good in here. (laughs) All right, so I want to ask you this because you know this show's a big fan of champagne. We've had you know great champagne people on, from producers to guys like you to writers and everything. Peter Liam. Legend. Why is champagne so great? Oh, I I know the answer, but I want you to tell me the the obvious things. Well, from like 
like why is it so famous? Why is it so important? Or why do we love it? Why do well, we first love of all, hold it? On. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Cheers to everybody. Good Thank luck you. on your launch. Thank you. We're gonna try the the Juliet and we're gonna uh, discuss it towards the end of the show. We'll rate it. We're just gonna enjoy it right now. Mm. So good. So why is it so amazing? Because it's so delicious. It it's is delicious. It's effervescent. It's complex. It has an insane um, history. I think one of the things that's so cool about Champagne is that the region is so heavily regulated. The ways in which Champagne have to be made are so consistent across this massive region with quite a bit of, um, of distinctive styles of terroir. Um, it's also one of the hardest regions in the world to grow grapes. Um, it has been ravaged by war, and so there's such a huge amount of history. But I think it's so cool that there are pretty much only three varietals. There are more, but there's a real focus on three varietals. Name um, them. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. Which and, is also a red grape, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, which is really a blending grape that's pretty much only present in Champagne. Some people are making still wines now, but it's pretty rare. And... Um, Within uh, those three grapes and within such standardized ways of making the wine, there's such a huge diversity in style. Right. It's so cool. And I think what's happening right now of, like, the dominance of the negociants and the big, the big, big, big houses, and then what's happening right now with smaller grower producers, which only make up about 5% of the market, but you're seeing such exciting tell, things happening in wine Tell making. people what a grower producer is. And Gonay Medville is considered a grower Absolutely. producer. Absolutely. They definitely are. Because people know, you mentioned Vouve Clicquot and Dom Perignon and Krug and all that. Those are big champagne houses. Growers... Yeah, so a grower-producer grows their own grapes and vinifies their own wines. So it's really truly like a small farmer who is tending over the land, pulling in all the grapes, and then making the wine in their own winery. Now, and were these guys providing the grapes to the big houses and, and pivoted at some point? Yeah, they used to be most typically just growers. And so they would grow right. the grapes and then sell um, the grapes to these huge houses that were pulling in grapes from all throughout the region and blending them in most typically into non-vintage champagnes. And so what the big houses are known for is what they call a house style. And so Consistent. if you... It, consistency. And the idea was always, from a marketing perspective, that if you open a bottle of Renart Blanc de Blanc champagne in 1970 on your wedding day, and then you open another bottle of Renart Blanc de Blanc in 2020, it should taste exactly the same as the guy tasted in 1970. Right. And that... There's like tremendous consistency across the brand, almost like Coca-Cola or Heinz ketchup. But Coke uses a syrup. Champagne, they'll use multi-vintages to get where Absolutely. they want. I mean, it's a little more complex. Oh, it's like much you said. more, much more yeah. complex. There's a tremendous art in blending. Um, and there are many, many big houses that produce extraordinary wines, wines that should be aged and uh, wines that should be taken really seriously. But what's happening now that's just sort of cool and exciting is that there are these smaller grower producers who are making highly allocated wines, meaning that there's just very little of it available on the market because they make 2,000 right. cases, 5,000 cases, as opposed to 5 million, 10 million, 15 million. Right. And so what's really cool is you can find amazing value in those wines because um, there's not as much spent on marketing, certainly. Right. And um, you can explore a huge range of styles of wines from 
cool little growers. Um, right. And so you can get 10 different Blanc de Blancs from different growers, taste and them all side by side. In and different regions in Champagne. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which kind of leads to my point that Champagne's having its time now. I mean, it, it's it's proliferated wine bars. It's proliferated restaurant lists like crazy. I mean, you walk into a Maylino or something. Oh, yeah. Pizza place, and there's like 100. Um, it's proliferated the average consumer. Um, why is that? Is it because of ambassadors like you that bring it to the forefront? Do people realize it's beyond celebratory? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think sommeliers in the last 10 years in particular have Drove really, that. really been driving it. And um, it's because the wines are so refreshing and they work so well with food. I think there's ah, also that's been, what I was looking for. Yeah. And why do they work well with food? Give me the two words. Acidity. High acid. Oh, high acid. Or yeah, good I was like, I was like, what's the other or word? Good acidity. <laughs> that yeah, that makes acid. it a very yeah. versatile. Yeah, absolutely. Food friendly wine. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also been a huge. Now it feels almost like cliche to talk about it, but a lot of people um, drink champagne with really casual food. Like a lot of people are really into champagne and fried chicken, or champagne and pizza, or champagne popcorn. and burgers, champagne and popcorn. Like we do, you know, a lot of those things at the Riddler. And caviar I think, and potato chips. Of course. It's the best way to have better. Absolutely. There you go. And um, I think when you expose more people to those styles of pairings and they realize that you don't have to be at an uptown restaurant eating a multi-course tasting menu, that you can have champagne at a picnic or like with a burger or with tacos. Right. I I like to think about it of like anything that you would want to drink a beer with you probably would also want to have champagne with. The reason why you want a beer is that it's cold, it's effervescent, it's refreshing, it's high acid, it's like cleaning your palate a little bit. And, you know, I but don't think it's... Champagne is more food friendly. Oh, yeah, definitely. Think, than beer. Absolutely. But so much that, more subtle. Yeah, it's that experience. Um, all right. So that's why we love champagne. Before we take a break, I want to hit you on two different topics so we just discussed that there's a popularity of champagne. Is that driven by millennials, or it's not fair to say that? What do you think, Zach, the millennial in the room? Yeah, I mean, is it? So I would say it's actually not really driven by millennials just because of the price point. Like um, when you think of your friends and their drinking yeah. habits and what you bring to parties, dinners, what sure. you order, not in the sights? Not, not at all. So I'm, <laughs> I'm 25, and... I probably have consumed 99% of the champagne of every person I know my age. Um, so I would say that really the big issue is not an issue, but it is a cost prohibitive drink, okay. which obviously is rooted in so much tradition, the strict regulations around how you make it. It takes five years to generally make a champagne at the very like fastest. So because of that, I would say that really some of the major drivers are people like my sister's generation. Um, really focused on like high-end restaurants, really cool places, seen and be seen, um, but also that are moving from you know the natural lights and Bud Lights to the really higher-end drinking of their life. So the price point is just a little above range. Yeah. For you, your buddies, you know, millennials and all that. Yeah, exactly. But Jen, to your point, we could find. You know, if we drink wines in a range from 20 to 80 bucks, you could find great grower stuff Absolutely. square in the middle there, even Definitely lower. Definitely in the middle. It's pretty hard to find anything less than about $45. Right. And that, but, that may be a little too high for millennials. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's like 
an affordable luxury for specific events. So like Valentine's Day is Friday, it, it, right? Unfortunately for millennials, it still may be more celebratory. Right, than just exactly. Replacing Jen, replacing your white at the beginning of a dinner with it, with, you know, Absolutely. shellfish or whatever. Yeah. yeah. All right. Zach, answer this for me and then Jen. Do you think you could launch a brand today without social media? Um, and and like, the impact that social media, you know, has, you know, on your business PR. And I want to talk to you about press and all that after we come back. But it, it, you take social media for granted. Oh, you absolutely do. But if you didn't have that tool in your tool chest. So I would say yes, just because of the connections that Jen has and the partners that we have. So because this business inherently is a B2B business where the distributor is selling to a retailer or restaurant, I think that the ultimate purchaser, so for example, a beverage director at a restaurant, decides to buy a wine because of the quality it's of the wine. It's old school human contact. Exactly. You agree, Jen? Um, well, uh, that's interesting and very flattering. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. But I also Coming think- Coming from the young guy. I know, I know. Um, I'll just say like, we just launched the brand yesterday and we got coverage both online and in print from the New York Times. Got coverage on Eater. Um, we sent out an email to 14,000 people, and we posted on a bunch of different social media sites. The email list was from the, the, the Riddlers like, and like an everybody overall, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And sent out a national press release. And of all of the things in terms of like percentage of hit rate, like by far social media is the thing that... You know, we got we got a lot of press interest from the press release we sent out. We got um, a lot of sales through the email that we sent out. But like the place that people are so really activating is on social, like an Instagram versus the direct mail campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Just the, the buzz and the response. And absolutely. All, right? all right, we're gonna take a quick break. We're talking to uh, Jen and Zach Pelka. Jen and Zach uh, are involved with the Riddler um, Champagne Bars in San Francisco and New York. Jen has Magnum PR. Zach is overseeing the launch of Unfem, which we just opened the Juliet, and we're going to talk about that. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. All right, we're back. We are back with my guests, Jen and Zach Pelka. Um, exciting day for Jen and Zach. They launched... Um, their champagne brand, which in a few minutes we're going to talk about a little more, and we're going to taste it and evaluate it, but we're sipping it now, and hopefully get a buzz in the next few minutes. <laughs> um, you know, Jim, we were talking about social media and 
talking about, you know, PR and all that. Um, you have a very savvy background in that. I mean, why is press so important? And you said that social media made the biggest impact. So obviously... It's you- funny. The, the thing that makes the biggest impact is traditional media that you post about on social media. Well, give me an example, so, just so... Yesterday I, posted two, yesterday, I posted the launch of our brand, which is a beautiful photo of the product with a very emotional introducing, um, like, you know, the, the caption is like, introducing Unfem, this project that I've been doing with my brother that's taken two years in the making, thanking all these people. And it got, like, I don't know, 150 likes. Then today I posted, which you would think this is after, so it would get a lower rate, a photo of the print copy of the New York Times. I was going to say, you, so you extended that. Yeah. But without even doing that, it's sort of like, hey, I saw you in the Times, or that right. was cool, in the, right. which is very traditional. Well, it's like... Print. It's like validating the thing mm-hmm. on this digital platform. And that one like went crazy. But people who liked it yesterday liked it today, but they like liked it more and commented more. And, but social you know. media is about content, and Florence Fabricant created some content. Absolutely. Like, hey, look, there's this cool new yeah. product by a cool person. That's your content, and you can distribute in all of that. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're a whiz at pressing all of that, so you know the value. Um, all right, let's talk about the Riddler a little. Um, when you first describe the environment and the vibe you created... Obviously, when you were sitting in the sushi restaurant staring at it, you closed your eyes and said, when I walk in, this is what I want and what people. What did you create? I wanted it to feel like it had been there for a really long time and referenced places in Paris and in New York. So the spot that I opened in San Francisco had all this beautiful old woodwork and beautiful old ceilings a lot. It's a corner space. I love corner spaces. So you left has that. funky banquettes. Um, it's a lot of black and white and gold. Um, I have a collection of old vintage champagne buckets. We have beautiful plants everywhere. And we have a gold Is leaf this ceiling. stuff you've been collecting through the years Absolutely. or when you... Yeah. Both. Like I'm um, doing a restaurant, I got to look and keep these things. Plus you've had them. Absolutely. Anyway. I'm always collecting champagne buckets because we have a gorgeous <laughs> collection in both. Okay. Um, we did these really cool um, French cafe tables that we had made for us in Lyon in France. And I had seen them at um, Cafe de Flore in Paris. And they're these beautiful, extremely extensive enamel tables that say on them, hello, old friend, and the Riddler. Ah, nice. And um, they can be photographed really beautifully from above. Um, they're white enamel. And so, you know, I think a lot about Instagram when, when we're designing the space to make sure that it, everything will photograph well if people want to photograph it. Um, but in a way that doesn't feel kitschy. And so our New York space feels very similar. It's also a corner. Corner with a little post down the entrance. Exactly. It's a cute spot. Yeah. And we have a similar gold leaf ceiling. Similar vibe, goal. Gold leaf ceiling, a lot of brass, a lot of gold, a lot of black and white, a lot of leather, a lot. And so old wooden floors. Um, the New York one feels, I think, a little bit more... Um, Formal because New York is a little bit more of a formal place than you San know, Francisco. I haven't been in, but I walked by, and I think formal's a stretch. I think it it is. There's a formality yeah. to it, but 
don't let that scare people away. Oh, no. Till, I mean, we're like blasting hip hop and right. it gets extremely packed and loud. So <laughs> I'm all about the high low. I think it's really right. important to blend, um, you know, fine dining, like people who used to work in fine dining who are also like wearing like black jeans and, you know, right. eh, you know, it's, it's a right. cool spot. So there's a curation of, I mean, champagne is featured heavily of course there's a curation of what you're doing yeah i mean um, there there are a couple things we talked about both of them in a way i, I mean i'll throw out the, we're talking grower mm-hmm. and uh focus towards women producers absolutely so tell me what you're so doing we have over that. 150 champagnes by the bottle and both of our lists have a section called the the bucket list which those are wines that we say that you need to try before you die so some of them are most of them are give me are, one or two i um, mean our our audience is always craving for you know stuff absolutely. What, what's the like one one that we recently sold was a 1982 cristal okay um that's a nice bottle that was on the list for I think two thousand dollars. It's not crazy. Um, it's not exactly. It's not crazy. <laughs> Everyday drinking. Um, yeah. You know, and champagnes yeah. as they get older are. Um, what? Give me another so one. So incredible, um, like a nineteen forty nine Heidsick. That's a, that's a nuts one. Yeah, I mean, have you had a lot of old champagne? I have. Yeah. Oh, I've had a lot of everything. I know. I know. I know. Um, I mean, I'm old champagne. Wise is in my age. Such a. Such um, it's a different thing. A special experience. It's a different thing. I mean, yeah. I've had enough to you know be able to you know evaluate. Um, what um, little food there to compliment? Oh it? yeah, absolutely. We've got um, in in New York we have a full kitchen. So I really wanted to do a raw bar. So we have a beautiful raw bar, oysters, shrimp, razor clams, etc. Um, we've got a killer burger uh, with really amazing fries, and we've always got beautiful salads, beautiful vegetable dishes beautiful fish dishes. Our chef, Nicole Morsink, is amazing. And she um, she was at the Modern for five years. And before that, she was at 11 Madison Park in the Nomad. Extremely talented. Good, uh, good hybrid there. Does it drive you a little crazy that you're not doing it to the extent in San Francisco? Or that it is does. what it is? Yeah, it drives me nuts. Is that a change but, you can make? Um, or it's, it's physically not? I mean, that space, we don't have a full kitchen there. But we are, we're expanding the menu um, and, and figuring out how we're going to do additional things like oysters um, you know one day we dream to maybe put in a real kitchen there it's it's such a small space it's 500 square feet but that team our chef there Preeti is amazing she's so smart so cool she used to be a bar tartine she's like a little bit more experimental in her approach very California inspired very sustainability focused very seasonal so it's cool I really love to work with people who want to take the menu in their own direction a right. little bit and but still always have you know caviar talk and to me chips. about by the glass can I walk in and what's my opportunities and options yeah you've always got about a dozen champagnes on the list by the glass okay because um, I don't think all... people can afford a bottle or right. want to drink a bottle Absolutely. but they want to and bubbly it's cool. and they want to be in that environment. It's cool also to try like two different Blanc right. Blancs and see what that's right. about. Um, we always have a couple sparkling wines by the glass. So right now um, in New York, for example, we have a feature on Australian wines and a percentage of proceeds is going to benefit Fires. a koala rescue. Nice. Um, so that's always important. We always kind of have a theme in that section. We always have a section called Dealer's Choice, which is some a wine that one of the sommeliers picks and that they advocate for and they want to open, that it's really, really rare to otherwise have that on a by-the-glass list. Um, we always have some rosé champagnes. We always have some vintage champagnes. We like people to be able to get um, a nice 
breadth of, of what they'd be able to try. It's pretty rare for us to do a lot of the big houses unless we're doing a feature on it. Um, right. Because we know that people are going to order those you by the bottle. You, and You could do what you want. We can do what we want. <laughs> Is Absolutely. there anything besides champagne on the list? I should know the answer to that. I should not have even asked oh, it. Oh, I mean, totally. But in fine. all my research, I forgot yeah. to check that. That's cool. What else is We there? have a couple still wines that are always champagne varietals. So Chardonnay, Pinot Is it Coteau, Champenois Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Coteau, Champenois is so much fun. It's pretty hard to get it um, mm. imported into the United States. It's, we it's always, not cheap and it's oh, kind of no, rare. It definitely yeah. is not. We always have Ratafia, which is a fortified wine that is like a dessert wine. Um, which Zach made, you made some ratafia or you, you drank a lot Didn't of it in your it. coffee. We would when have you were it every there. morning. Uh, okay. when I, I worked harvest and champagne this year and nothing like starting the day with some fortified wine in your coffee. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Unfem. Um, you launched your own wine company, Zach, you're kind of the lead guy on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Juliet came out today or yesterday. Yep. yep. You hit the ground running. You got some good press in the Times, and, you know, I see some buzz on social media. Um, Zach, tell me a little about, you told me a little about it earlier, mm-hmm. but um, the product is on the market. Let's talk about it a little. So sure. it's Gonet Medville. Yeah, so it's Gonet Medville. Um, Medville. Medville. Uh, the varietal blend is 70% Chardonnay, 25% Pinot Noir, and 5% Pinot Meunier. Wait, say that again. 25%? 25% Pinot Noir, okay. 70% Chardonnay, and okay. 5% Pinot Meunier. Nice mix. Um, it's all Grand Cru and Premier Cru fruit. Um, so Explain the- to people what that means. I, I, I mean, it, those are the fancy schmancy better sure. vineyards, but that's what it is, right? Yeah, that's basically what it is. So the quality. The, the AOC of Champagne basically designates the characteristic of the land on the crew system. So basically it's a rating from zero to 100 on how they deem the land, the terroir, and how it translates to the actual quality of the grapes. So Grand Cru is 100% rating, so it's basically the highest value right. grapes and wine in the Champagne region. Premier Cru is 90 to 99 is the rating, and then everything below that is mostly Cru. So really what that means is that the grapes are all sourced from the highest quality plots of land within Champagne. Um, and you, you're dealing with a husband-wife team? Yep, exactly. And here's what I'm curious about. Did you turn it over to them and say, sort of, here's what we like? Or how specific were you in the style that you wanted? Well, the way that this project came about is that we wanted to find it was it wasn't like we wanted to make a wine and then we like wanted to find a producer. It was that we fell in love with these wines that Julie and Xavier made. That inspired you. Absolutely. So, and the so we asked them or... to like kind of in the way that like with our chefs, I let them do what they want. I mean not completely, but um, <laughs> but with the winemaker, like we asked them to uh, make us a wine that they were really excited about that was a blend and non-vintage, et cetera. And um, this is the wine. So we're, we, you know, they are the artists. They are the experts. Both right. of their families have been making wine for uh, three or 400 years. Right. Like, who are we to come in and say, uh, this is what we want to do? Isn't there, help me out with this, isn't there a Gonet besides Gonet? There is, yeah. There are is a lot that of... same family or... Yeah, so the, the Gonet family has been making champagne for over 300 years. Is this one of the kids or something? This is one of the great, great, great okay. grandchildren. And so the way that it generally works in champagne is that when 
so it used to be historically the father died, he would pass on the parcels of land right. to his sons. Like Burgundy. So over time, champagne's recently, like yeah, exactly. It's actually changed to also include daughters, which is great. Or sometimes, for example, like the Vouv, the Vouclicot, got it as a widow. Um, but so what happened with our winemakers, Xavier Gonet, is when his father passed away, he had one brother, Michel. Um, Xavier mm -hmm. was interested in only having the highest quality Grand Cru, Premier Cru plots of land, whereas Michel was more interested ah. in going the negociant route. So basically, he got a very, very small allocation of the real estate, but really on the high end, got where it. his brother was focusing on the much larger scale of production. Got it. Because um, you do say you see the other Gonet yep. around. And you you drive around stuff. Epernay, and yeah. Gonet is on every other sign. It's unbelievable. <laughs> All right. Two more things about it. One, you're, you've set up a business. You're making money, but you've decided that you're going to take some of the proceeds and put it towards cause. What is that? It's Dress for Success, um, which, which is, is a very an incredible well organization which... that supports women in their quest for financial independence. So it started as an organization where people could donate beautiful, like, Just a self-esteem thing to like show that. up at an exactly. interview and look nice. Right. It's and, gone deeper, right? Oh, it's right? evolved so much. They service uh, millions of women, of women a year in over 155 countries. And we did a tremendous amount of research to decide who our charitable partner would be. We knew from the very start we wanted to work with an organization that helped women in particular. And um, that's who we're working with. We love them. They're amazing. Great. So. And the, the next thing, it's actually A and B. You mentioned that you're going to be releasing another wine, a Cali sparkler, a California sparkler, which happens to be called Cali. Absolutely. That's going to be a rosé. Quickly tell me who's making that. Yeah, so we're partnering with Samantha Sheehan of Poe Wines. Okay. So she makes some incredible sparkling wines. The reason that we know her is because she basically was producing the, our favorite domestic sparkling wines at the Riddler. Um, so we reached out, got really close with her, and have really been working on developing a much larger scale project. Um, so we actually have tanks, facilities out in Napa nice. that are producing this California sparkling wine. So we're, we're bottling 15,000 bottles on Friday. We'll be hitting the market. Wow, in probably that's the a next, nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a great start. So and 1,200 we have, cases or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Nice. Um, so that wine is all sourced from Sonoma and Napa. Uh, it's a Pinot Noir dominant blend, but we also have some Morvedra in it as well as some Chardonnay. Nice. Um, and really the way that we thought about developing this and alongside with the Juliet is from our experience at the Riddler, we understand that there's kind of two main price points that consumers love. And it's really driving a lot of our revenue, other restaurants' revenue. So one, obviously, being champagne in the 120 to 160 range, grower producers, really high quality, something that you can connect with for a consumer such as my sister or someone from the wine world. Alternatively, on the millennial side, whatever is a crushable sparkling rosé that you can get for anywhere from 14 to $16 by the glass. That's the price point? Yeah. Yeah, so, it'll be in, in retail stores for under $20. Great. All right, so if people want to learn more about Unfem, because you talk about restaurants, it's available, retailers, you know, you could jump on Valentine's Day. I don't know if it's too late. Where do they go? Not too late. www.unfemwines.com. U-N-E. U-N-E. You can also follow us on at Unfem Wines. Right. And if you're in San Francisco or New York City, you can have the wines delivered to somebody for Valentine's Day through Caviar. 
You can do it through the Riddler. Caviar, the delivery On Caviar, set. and then also through Parcel Wine, or Parcel Wine Shop through Caviar um, this Friday. Okay. We, uh, when we end the show, we'll also, you know, go back to those things. Thank we'll you. We'll remind people. Um, we don't let people leave without answering our wine list. Um, it's five questions. We ask all our guests the same five questions. This is a speed round. Each one of you are going to give me an answer. You can't dwell on it. I don't want to hear stories or whatever. Our guests clamor to hear. Our listeners clamor to hear what our guests, you know, are drinking or recommending. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? I know you drink a lot of champagne and you're tasting your stuff, but what else is in the fridge? What, you know, are you curious about? Gimme. Gamay? Yeah. Beaujolais? Beaujolais. Okay. Uh, any maker or two you're loving? Um, anything Morgon. Okay. You're with me. Yeah. I go Morgon first, La Pierre, Foliard, all that yeah. stuff. And then the smaller guys. All right. What about you? I've been spending a lot of time in Napa, so more California wines, cabs out there. Give me not cheap stuff. Give me a couple of things. Scribe, Ashes and Diamonds. So the cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah cool guys. <laughs> all right. Goofiest question on the list, and we talked about it a little, and you can come back to it. Favorite wine and food pairing. Not something you necessarily eat every night, um, but something. Champagne and um, soft scrambled eggs with caviar as breakfast in bed. Perfect. You know what I do? What do you do? I pour a little champagne into the egg before I whip it. Really? Yes. Mm. It gives it a little fluff. A little little fluffer. All right, Zach. I love spicy food, so like a sweet Riesling and some Thai food. Sweet Riesling? Yeah. Okay. Um, see if you can help me with this without being exclusive. Tell me your favorite wine restaurant and or bar where it's cool. You know, your place fits the list perfectly, but if you're going out, it's cool, the knowledge, the selection, the people, the conviction. You can give me New York, San Fran, anywhere. I'm obsessed with the list at Coat, the okay. Korean. Okay, that's answer. Victoria. Oh, I took your answer. That's oh. okay. We can put yeah, that's Victoria, Victoria James. What is it about the list that uh, you have the obsession Well, for? there's a huge focus on champagne. Not the only place, though. Special Club Champagne. I just love that restaurant. I think the food is phenomenal, and... Their list is so cool because they... So you're not a vegetarian. I'm definitely not. Okay. Uh, and uh, you can explore so many cool wines um, while you're eating this, like, consistently awesome yeah, uh, I've been Korean there. barbecue. It's, I mean, it's, let's go tonight. It's next level Korean barbecue. Go ahead. I actually went to a restaurant called Passion Fish in Carmel, California. Wow. Amazing. Really, really high but quality wine. Wines. Oh, unbelievable people, wines. List. The food is amazing. Passion fish in in Carmel, California. Carmel. And the, there's a woman who's the wine director, and she prices everything at retail pricing. And you it's had some crazy retail. Burgundy, right? Oh yeah, or I had not, a 15 year old Burgundy for 40 bucks. So that's that. We just let the cat out of the bag. We screwed <laughs> up. All right, favorite all time wine. Question used to be, what was the most expensive, rarest wine you had? It's morphed into, what's the one that, you know, was experiential, resonated with you, meant something? What's an important wine to you? Uh, Definitely that Pierre Peters non-vintage had with breakfast and a really oozy cheese plate on that, you know, second date with my husband. That was an important one. See, that's, you remember that. You remember... Yeah, at Harvest this year with our winemaker, I had a, a bottle of still Pinot Noir from Champagne. That Which was Pinot from Noir? Ni- so it was a still Pinot, still Noir, Pinot Noir from 1948 that our winemaker's father had made. And it See, was that's just a unbelievable. Thing. Oh, yeah. All right, last question. And then we're going to taste some wines. And then we got to get out of here. 
best wine around 15 20 bucks my kid zach they can't show up at a party with a crappy nine eleven dollar bottle of wine and it's just a little too much to spend 40. i need a red and a white you guys could team together and give me one answer for both i can take four answers two one red one white one red one white, or i'll take two this is easy the cali the Cali, the Cali <laughs> Sparkler rose. is, what's the retail? It'll retail about 20 So that's perfect. I will take that, and I love to support it. That's a good food wine, good acidity, right? I love the wines, um, even though this is a little bit contrarian because they do a lot of natural winemaking, but I really, really love the wines from Brock Cellars in Okay, California. B-R-O-C. And um, they've got a lot of, of wines in that price point. If you're interested in the Natty Wine movement and you want somebody who's actually producing wines that are sound and that are, um, he's been doing it for a long time. I think that that's an important producer to explore. Good ones. Um, I didn't say this earlier, but on all my social media sites, I post the wine list answers. I post our weekly wine sip and any of the stuff that we talked about. Because like I said, people love to hear from guys like you what they're drinking. All right. We end the show with the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. It would be crazy not to taste your brand new champagne the timing is impeccable that's what happens when you get a pr marketing exec (laughs) jen was actually supposed to be on last week she canceled for this week i think she was bsing me but i'm okay with that because everything worked out all right so we are drinking the first release of un femme wines which is called juliette um let's remind people again pour me a little more zach give me the blend again so 70% Chardonnay. Right. Uh, 25% Pinot Noir, 5% Meunier. All right. So let's, we do the um, Grape Nation evaluation. Color, it's a light, beautiful golden hue. Good champagne. Yep. Bubbles, beautiful set of bubbles. What do we call Absolutely. those? Smaller, nice? Yeah. Small, fine. fine They're mousse. fine bubbles. They're not fine these mousse. big um, Corbell bubbles or whatever. That's right. Nothing again. All right, let's go nose. <laughs> yeah. Tell me what we get on the nose. I mean, I get a tremendous amount of citrus, like fresh, ripe, lemon, lime. I also get a lot of like sort of uh, ripe almondy characteristics. Not like marzipan, but more like a fresh almond. I definitely pick up a lot on the rock side, so really a lot of limestone. Graphite. Some, this is a wine that you leave on the lees for a absolutely. while, too, right? Absolutely. What does that uh, project as far as the nose, the lees? Yeah, so this was actually aged on the lees for 29 years. So 29 months. Sorry, 29, 29 months. months. <laughs> uh, so you this definitely this get started before you <laughs> yeah. were born. That's right. That's right. Zach has been on the lees. Um, no, but you definitely get like a brioche smell, which mm-hmm. is delicious. That's what the lees will give you, yep. that yeah. that. You know, brioche, flowery, and all. Yeah. yeah. All right, mouthfeel. Mm. Let's go. I, I'll go first, and then I want to hear from you. There's a beautiful mouthfeel. It's a little creamy, mm-hmm. which I like, you know, for champagne. The bubbles are delicate. Yeah. Tell me what you get. Yeah, like medium body. Definitely you're medium, getting Medium, medium, medium plus. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, um, yeah, you can taste that there's a little bit of sugar in there. Right. In terms of mouthfeel. Um, yeah, definitely a creamy characteristic for sure. Yeah, All right. you can pick up the six grams of dosage for sure. Yeah. Let's throw it over the tongue mm. and let's see what the palate is like. Does it replicate the nose descriptors? 
You said citrusy. We talked about brioche. What are we getting on the palate? Definitely a lot of citrus. I also get some sort of like peachy notes. I get a little bit more. White peachy. Yeah, white not, peach, not, absolutely. Not, um, not juicy. Yeah, like kind peach. of unripened white yeah, peach. Which is nice. Like a what little else? bit of green characteristic. Yeah, I was going to say definitely some fresh green apple. Yeah. Yeah. The they, zestiness of that. They block mallow, so that makes sense. All right, last thing, and we got to wrap up. What would you pair this particular Juliet, your first release, second day on the road, sharing it with me? What's a good pair? Oysters. Oysters. On the beach. Boom. With maybe like a, a, a bag of like deliciously almost like warm uh, lobster rolls. Mmm. You got anything? Delicious cheeseburger from the Riddler. Oh, that's this such would a go chill. well. I love it. You agree, Jen? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and totally, what totally. is it? It could handle the meat, the cheese, yeah, can, totally. all of that. Totally. All right, so that is the Juliet from Unfem Wines. If you want to know more, go www.unfemwines.com, right? All right, guys, we got to wrap up the show. Like I said, we could sit here and talk forever. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening at our event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Uh, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. Jen, I know that's confusing, but <laughs> we always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned before, I will post Jen and Zach's wine list answers on our social. Um, I will talk, I will give a little more information about the wines that we drank. Um, if we want to find more info, social and other stuff, let's say The Riddler, Instagram popular? Absolutely. The Riddler NYC for New York, The Riddler SF for San Francisco. Okay. Um, Unfem Wines, I said. At Unfem Wines. U-N-E-F-E-M-M-E. Um, wines? Unfem Wines. With an com. S. Yep. Right. And at Zach Pelka. And at Jen Pelka. Mm. So if we want to follow you guys... At J-E-N, Pelka, P-E-L-K-A, and at Z-A-C-H, Pelka. All right, you could see what these two uh, maniacs are doing during the day and all that. Also, uh, at John Pelka is our dad. He's a good one to follow, too. Okay. He needs a little help. I don't even think he has 400 followers. That's okay. Um, All right, guys, we got to wrap up. I want to thank our guests, Zach and Jen Pelka. A lot of exciting things going on. As always, thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.